good morning to you again. Um, and if you're like me and you're having trouble keeping track of all of your days, it's Sunday first. And as Taylor's already mentioned, it's Palm Sunday today. It's the day that the church around the world celebrates the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what is known as the first day of Holy Week. Um, it, it begins with crowds being gathered outside of the city gates of Jerusalem, uh, waving palm branches and singing, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And the week ends with a, a different crowd inside the city gates of Jerusalem screaming, crucify him, crucify him. What in the world happened? What happens so that people go from Hosanna to crucify him in five days? Well, it's just the culmination, really, of what Jesus has been insisting on all along. He has been misunderstood. His kingship has been misunderstood. Jesus will never allow us to craft an image of him that is not consistent with who he really is. He will not be molded into our own image. And in many ways, that's what Palm Sunday is about. So this morning, we're going to read from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. If you have a Bible where you are, I'd invite you to turn to it. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Follow along with me now as I read. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you are a king, the king king. Father, it is hard for us to bow our knees to you, but I pray that in this time as we consider your word, that you would move and act in our hearts, that we would do just that, that we would bow the knees of our heart to you and live our lives under your reign. 
We ask it in your most holy name. Amen. Always remember, Harry, celebrity is what celebrity does. This was the advice that Gilderoy Lockhart gave Harry Potter when Harry was serving detention in his office by having to answer his fan mail for him. Because, you see, Gilderoy Lockhart was famous. He had written a book, and his book detailed all of his exploits defeating evildoers like all over the world. He was famous, and the fact that he had been recruited to become the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher at a boarding school for children was amazing. But you see, Gilderoy Lockhart, at the end of the day, was a fake and a fraud. He was a terrible magician. He only knew how to do one thing, and that was erase people's memories. But that meant that he was uh, able to take credit for exploits and adventures that other people had done and claim them as his own. You see, celebrity really is as celebrity does. It remains the same in our world today. Celebrity is ultimately about show. It's not about substance. It's about what is portrayed. It's not about what is real. It's about discarding the 199 photographs that you don't like so that you put the one that you do, doctored, of course, on Instagram. As I heard someone say recently, a picture is really worth a thousand lies. But we can't get enough. We're attracted to celebrities like bees are attracted to honey. Instagram influencers, reality TV shows like The Bachelor, we can't get enough. We can't turn away. Somewhere deep down we know that these things aren't real. But there's a part of us that wants it to be real. We want it to be true even if it's not because we want to think that somewhere, some way, life could be that perfect. Life could be that carefree. Life could be that beautiful. Life could be that adventurous. Life could be that passion. Even life could be that dramatic. All the things that our lives on this earth aren't. We want it to be real. And we want the same thing when it comes to our view of who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. We want the image of Jesus that we create in our minds to be real. We want that to be Jesus. And so we want it so badly that we actually live out of that image. We lean into the image that we have created of Jesus even if that image is not true. That's the great temptation. And it's not new. So much of what lies at the heart of Holy Week, this week between what we read this morning, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and his death and resurrection at the end of the week, so much of that is about confusing Jesus. It is about stripping away the lies of who Jesus is and what he's about. And Jesus himself saying, no, this is who I am. This is what I have come to do. And what he is announcing, again, is that he is the king. And the true king demands our response. Jesus, you see, is the true king. The problem that so many people have with Jesus, and maybe the problem that you have with Jesus, however it is that you are hearing this today, is that 
is that he holds in tension two things that we think are mutually exclusive. But he leans into and lives out of both of them. That Jesus is both powerful and humble. And he is powerful and he is humble at the same time. Perfectly so. Gloriously so. You see, Jesus, first of all, is the powerful king. When he enters into Jerusalem and the people are laying their cloaks down on the road and they're waving their palm branches or what Mark calls in our text leafy branches, there is one thing that Jesus does not do. He does not stop them. He does not correct them. He doesn't say, quiet, quiet, don't say Hosanna to me. No, 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 stop. Stop doing that. He does not do that. He deserves all of the adulation that he is receiving and more coming in to Jerusalem, even if the people didn't know exactly what they were doing. The palm branches or the leafy branches uh, and the laying out of cloaks are symbolic of military victory. That's what it would have signified in the context of the time in the first century. They hearkened back to another great victory that the Jews celebrated every single year. It was the military victory of Judas Maccabeus over the Syrian invaders of the Holy Land in 164 B.C. And every single year, the Jews celebrated that, and they still do, in the time of Hanukkah. When Judas Maccabeus entered into Jerusalem as a victorious war hero, the people spread their cloaks out on the road, and they waved palm branches. It's a symbol of military victory. Hosanna, these cries of Hosanna in the highest, means save us, save us now. But at the time that they were speaking those words in the first century, it wasn't really about the shouts of one who wanted salvation from their sin through the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. That hadn't even happened yet. It was the shout of someone who really wanted Jerusalem and the Holy Land to be returned to rule by the Jews. There was an expectation of what Jesus was doing going into Jerusalem. He was going to do to the Romans what Judas Maccabeus had done a couple of centuries before that to the Syrians. He was going to defeat them. He was going to return rule back to the Jews, and he was going to sit on the throne as king. You see, they believed in this moment waving palm branches, laying their cloaks on the road, shouting Hosanna, that Jesus was actually the second coming of Judas Maccabeus. It was the time not to defeat the Syrians, but to defeat the Romans. That is what they thought they were witnessing. But you see, not only is that an incorrect understanding of Jesus's power. It's not even a complete understanding of the kingship of Jesus or any king, good king for that matter, because Jesus is not only a powerful king, he's also a humble king. Because for all of the palm branches and all of the cloaks on the road, all of the shouts of Hosanna in the highest, you could sing that old song from Sesame Street. One of these things doesn't belong here. One of these things is not like the rest. You know what that thing is? It's the colt. It is the animal that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on. 
It says he's riding into Jerusalem on a colt, a small and young animal, the foal of a donkey, as Zechariah calls it in his prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. I have this mental picture of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on one of those little bitty horses that the hobbits rode on in the Lord of the Rings. It just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit uh, the, 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 the scene at all because if he was there, to take on the Romans, if he was there to gather an army, if he was there to draw people to himself as a mighty, war-hungry king, he would have ridden in on a powerful steed, a war horse. But no, he's the humble king. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We should actually expect this to be the case with Jesus. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus spoke these words, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is power combined with humility. That's what it is. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is not being a spineless jellyfish that has no vision or agency and gets blown around by the wind. A meek person is a powerful person, but one who uses his or her power for the sake of serving others. A meek person is strong, and a meek person is humble. You know, I've been thinking a lot these last few weeks about my brother. My brother is an infectious diseases doctor at Emory Hospital in Atlanta. He's pretty much amazing when it comes to medicine. Medical school and uh, residency at Emory, uh, an appointment to the faculty of Duke University Hospital, and then appointment back to the faculty of Emory Hospital. My brother in, in, in this season of time is what you would call an expert, uh, truly. And he's very, very strong in his field. But do you know what he's spending his days doing? He's spending his days, long days and nights, deliberately walking into virus-saturated rooms, exposing himself to something that is very dangerous. Because if he refuses to walk into those rooms... If he refuses to expose himself to the virus, people will die. They will die. And of course, he is not the only one. Even in our own church body, there are many of you who are spending your days and your nights walking into those very same rooms. And for that, we are humbled and we are grateful. And you know what's happening there? My brother and you who are doing that as well, you are using your power. You are using your power and you are using your strength in service of other people at great risk to yourself. That's the work of Jesus. The king who is both powerful and humble. In his power, he took on and defeated the devil. By remaining faithful to his Father in heaven, he cast out demons, he healed the sick, he calmed the sea, he raised the dead. In his humility, 
He entered the virus-saturated room of this earth, saturated with sin and the effects of sin on all of his creation. He exposed himself to it, being tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Why? Because if Jesus refused to enter in, if he refused to walk in, we would die. We would die with no hope, but only the expectation of an eternity suffering apart from God and what the Bible calls hell. You see, Jesus must be both powerful and humble. And we must rejoice that he is both. What's interesting, though, is that we don't always really want Jesus to be both powerful and humble. I think a lot of us in our own proclivities want him to be either or. We want him to be one or one of those things, but not both. There are those who want Jesus to be only powerful, that want Jesus to essentially be a weapon in their war of cultural renewal. We want Jesus to have all of the same enemies that we have. And you want Jesus to use his power to put a stop to what you don't like in the world. See, the people who want Jesus to be only powerful may be some of the people who are spreading the word on social media that coronavirus is God's judgment on the world or on our country for X, Y, or Z sins. Now, I'll be the first to tell you that I have, I, I have zero idea, no idea whatsoever, why God is allowing coronavirus to be here and to spread. And certainly sin plays a part in it with respect to the undisputed fact that if there were no sin and no fallen creation, then there would be no deadly viruses running amok in the world. But how is it that we believe we have revelation into what God is doing? Why do we get to be the ones who determine that angry is mad at sins X, Y, and Z, but not also A, B, and C? Maybe the ones that we struggle with. We can get deeply sidetracked into foolish controversies that we know absolutely nothing about if we only want God to be powerful, Jesus to be powerful, and a weapon in our war. But some of you may want exactly the opposite. You may want Jesus to be only humble. Not meek, actually, but truly weak. You like to think that Jesus is there, but that he is there primarily to promote your happiness. That's why Jesus exists. Whatever it is that you want out of this life and in this life, Jesus is beside you to provide it for you. He never questions it. He never questions you. He never challenges you. He would certainly never dare stand in your way. He's only humble. He's there to meet your needs, whatever it is that you determine that your needs are, and that's why he exists. But here's the thing. We don't need that Jesus. We don't need either one of those because that Jesus exists to ratify our agendas in the world. That Jesus conforms to us. And that is exactly opposite of what he is calling. Jesus is calling us to conform to him, not for him to conform to us. 
So the king, the powerful and humble king, demands a response. And I use that word demands on purpose because it is absolutely the craziest thing that you can possibly do uh, with respect to the biblical claims regarding who Jesus is as the power and humble king to remain neutral about it. That's like the one thing that can't happen, right? If Jesus is who he claims to be, everything changes. If he's not who he claims to be, nothing changes. No big deal. There's no neutrality there. And that's what this confusing scene in verses 12 through 14 is all about. Jesus is walking from Bethany a few miles away from Jerusalem back to Jerusalem after he made his triumphal entry late in the day before. And as he was walking, he saw a fig tree with leaves on it. And he walked over to it because he wanted to get something to eat. And seeing that there was nothing on the fig tree, because it was not the time for figs, no less, he cursed it. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now, what in the world is that about? That is so unexpected and and a little bit weird. To be honest, it kind of makes Jesus at first blush look a little petty and petulant, doesn't it? But he's not. Here's what's going on here. A fig tree in leaf is a fig tree that should have just begun to bud. It's like all of the oak trees in your yard right now that are killing you, basically. It's a, it is a budding fig tree, but it's not a fig tree that was ready to be harvested fully for figs. That's why the, the Mark says it was not the time for figs. But people did like to eat the buds of the fig tree, the little teeny tiny figs that were not yet fully in bloom. They liked to snack on those as they walked by, and they should have been there. They should have been there. A fig tree that was in leaf should also have been a fig tree that was in bud. It was the job of the fig tree to produce that fruit. But it didn't. What should have been there because it was a fig tree was not there. And that is why Jesus cursed it. It makes sense of what happens next because immediately after what we read, Jesus walks into the temple of Jerusalem and he disrupts all of the businesses going on there. That's where he's overturning the tables and he's chasing all the money changers out. Why? Because that was disrupting the ability of the nations to come in to worship God. Israel, his people, the people that Jesus came uh, to, 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 to seek and to save originally, they were not bearing the fruit that they were caused to bear. They were supposed to be a light to the nations, calling the nations into the worship of God. But in what they had set up in front of the temple and in the court of the Gentiles was preventing them from doing what they were called to do. It was preventing their mission to the nations. It was preventing their mission. And Jesus cursed them by overturning it and chasing them out. You see, what was happening there was that there was a lot of activity. There was actually a lot of religious activity in that temple, but there was no fruit. There was no mission. Like the fig tree, they weren't bearing the fruit they were called to bear because of who they were. No deep longing for the redemptive work of God. No desperation for his presence. Religious activity devoid of the fruit of transformation. And devoid of the passionate fruit of calling others in to worship God. Now there's a very important challenge here for us. 
I keep saying this, but I once heard someone say about communication that you have to say and keep saying something until people beg you to stop. Uh, and then you know that you might have said it even enough. So here we go again. We as followers of Jesus have an incredible opportunity during this time when our normalcy has been stripped away from us. There's a forced stillness in some senses, if not in your heart and your soul. I, I understand that. But at least in the fact that you have to stay home most of the time. And a lot of our activity, even a lot of our religious activity, has been stripped away to its bare bones. Here's my question. When all of that is stripped away from you, what are you left with? That's the question I've been asking myself these last several weeks. When I can't do everything in a week that I normally do as a busy, busy, busy bee pastor, you know, I'm really busy. When I can't do that public ministry, what does my relationship with Jesus look like? What does your relationship with Jesus look like? Are you feeling a little bit awkward in his presence like now? Like, hey, Jesus, I know it's been a while. Um, haven't answered your calls or returned your emails. I, I've been so busy. I've been so busy, you know? Is that how it feels to you right now a little bit? Even the fact that we aren't meeting all together on Sunday morning focuses an institutional question for us at Christ the King. Do we feel right now like we are much less of a church because we're not able to inhabit this building on Sunday mornings? Or is it possible? Is it possible that we could feel like much more of a church because we are spread out into every corner of our city right now? Is this empty building the church? This empty room that I'm sitting in right now, is this the church? Or are you the church? Are you the church? Where you are right now, in your pajamas, on your sofa, eating Cap'n Crunch out of the box, are you the church? What's God telling us? Well, he's telling us that he's the king. But the king doesn't always look like what he thinks, what we think he looks like. And his kingdom doesn't always look like what we want it to look like. It's not about a building. It's not about a bunch of programs. It's not about uh, some kind of fantastic experience that we call people into and try to get people to come and look at. It's about his work of redeeming all things and using you spread out in every corner of the city to do that. The king knows exactly what he's doing. And that is a king worth following to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you that you know exactly what you are doing with the world, with our city, with your people called the church. I pray, Father, that we would have eyes to see and hearts to join with you in your mission, O oh God, of redeeming all things in Christ Jesus. And I ask it in his name. Amen.